Hey everyone, welcome to Data Knowledge Pioneers presented by Workstream IL. Um, and we're exploring how organizations create shared consciousness about their data. Uh, I'm Nick Freund and I'm speaking with leaders and data practitioners around the, or about the acute problems they experience in creating, curating, and disseminating knowledge about their data. Uh, and today we're gonna explore the issue or problem of data asset sprawl. And joining me are two awesome data leaders uh, who really know how easy it is for analytics environments to descend into what I would call a state of chaos. So first off, we've got Jamie Davidson, who's the co-founder of Omni and awesome new uh, BI platform that they're developing. So I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, and he's a former VP of product at Looker. Uh, and we also have Ted Conbeer, who's the chief data officer at Privacy Dynamics, which is also another great new company in the data space. Um, and I asked Ted to join because he was the former SVP of data and strategy at Makespace, and he was a very early adopter of Looker. And so hopefully we'll have some good discussions um, from both the uh, builder as well as the data practitioner uh, side of the house about this problem. Uh, so anyways, uh, Jamie, Ted, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Of course, of course. Um, so to start, I just thought maybe we could like dive into the problem of data asset sprawl and what we think it is and how we kind of want to define it. Um, and for me... Uh, as I was kind of just mentioning, I kind of define it as this phenomenon of entropy in analytics environments or this like descent into chaos where over time more and more stuff gets created. And you just end up in this state where there's a lot of things and kind of people don't know what to use or trust. So, I mean, you know, Ted, we've talked a lot about this. I would just be curious, like, is that how you would define it? Would you define it in a different way? How would you characterize this problem? The way I look at it is kind of, you know, new tools like Looker and the other kind of modern BI tools have made it so easy to create and share analytical assets, you know, dashboards and charts and things like that. Um, and really those things are pieces of software. And they say like with any software, 80% of the cost of building software is actually maintaining it, but no one is actually maintaining these analytical assets, you know, full time. And they're not treating them like, true products, like there's a lot of talk of data as products, but there's there's really hardly any maintenance, there's no observability and things like that downstream from actually creating that asset. And so at Makespace for a long time, I was a data team of one, and then we had a small team supporting, um, you know, a couple of hundred people in the field. And um, so we would have to partner with uh, like power users across the organization, and they were really good at creating assets, um, but those things would quickly go stale or break or get out of date, but it wasn't clear in the tool which assets were trustworthy and which assets were maybe stale or out of date and could cause people to get to the wrong answer. And so that was kind of the problem that was keeping me up at night. And that's really how, what I think about when I think about sort of data asset sprawl. Makes sense. You know, Jamie, I know you, you ran data at Looker like internally for a while, and obviously you've worked with like lots of customers. Does that like resonate with you? Does that sound right? I mean, do you have a different take on it? No, no, I, I uh, completely agree. Um, I, and I, I do think it's like entropy is a, a, a good way of describing it. I think, you know, part of the value of these tools is they're lowering the friction from asking every incremental question. So you can ultimately derive insight from your, from your data, making it as easy as possible. The, the problem with lowering the friction, though, is you end up with a proliferation of logic. So, you know, every single permutation of every single question you get ends up with a new asset, 
new a new dashboard that's you know looking at your sales funnel for this product line for this you know for this region for this time frame and whatnot and uh without sort of proper uh maintenance of of that sort of that you know those those assets or without um looking at like a you know software development process or a product process too and recognizing uh you know there's a cost to those things you you end up inevitably uh in, in sort of a state of like what we would call kind of data chaos, like where you look for what is my canonical sales pipeline, and I get fifteen different answers from fifteen different dashboards, potentially with you know materially different you know uh, results and, and you know driving different decision making too. So I think it's it's a it's a key problem. I think it's a it's a technology problem. I think it's also a process and people problem um, too. Kind of like you know software development, you know, and product development in the, in the first place too. Totally. I mean, do you. If it's both a technology and process problem, is it is it you think it's shared like 50-50? Is it 80-20 one way or the other? Well, the people side is actually probably typically way, way, way more difficult. Uh, you know, how do you uh, deprecate assets? How do you discover things? How do you empower an organization to make make good decisions? Um, how do you like even a simple uh, you know, there's been a, a rise in uh, folks talking about things like the metrics there. How do you define your KPIs in the first place and get a, a canonical definition and agreed upon definition to across an organization? I think those things, uh, it's much, it's much more around, you know, the, the business, the process associated with it too. Like defining the metric is actually not that difficult to do. You know, every, every SQL analyst or every data scientist will go and do this and redo it in, you know, every, every permutation. So like, I think in general, it ends up being mostly a, a, people problem. I think people problems can be helped with technology, though. And I think technology needs to basically serve as a means to uh, reinforce canonical definitions. So like, you know, Looker, Looker would talk about, you know, a single a single source of truth, you know, having a, a single place that you define metrics and then, you know, have uh, the ability to have change management processes like software, software development lifecycle, you know, get and version control and the like. Um, that's absolutely a, you know, it helps with it enables you to go and have some of that that uh, people process, but the people process is the most important part. That, that's where I think most organizations fall over. Ted, I think you were kind of like calling that out too, right? That it was a lot of this was felt as you were like enabling folks around self service. Like, is, is do you agree it's fundamentally a people problem? Or I guess so. I think the the in some ways the technology and the expectations around the technology have created the people problem from my standpoint, right? Like yeah. when you emailed someone an Excel spreadsheet, you know, you put the date in the title of the spreadsheet, somebody opens it a year and a half later, they don't expect to like be able to make decisions using that year and a half old spreadsheet, right? But with a dashboard that automatically pulls down the latest data, they can fire that up and they're like, oh, cool, I'm, I'm good to go now. And so it's kind of fighting that default expectation of like every dashboard should live forever and every uh, analysis is not um, a snapshot of a point in time. Like it's not something that used to be true back then. It's something that is true now. That is a, a really hard problem to fight is like, especially on a small team, right? I was, like I said, like one person supporting 200. We had, you know, at one point uh, up to a thousand looker dashboards and many thousands of saved looks and like, that's, you know, you could say that's a people problem because I enabled all these people to create that information to begin with. But it was, um, we were getting a ton of value and unlocking a, a ton of great things by allowing that prol proliferation, yeah. but then not having any tools to scale myself to rein that back in was really where I um, ran into like a bit of a wall. 
Yeah, I, I just to like uh, pile on there too. I, I completely agree. I think if anything, the technology has exacerbated the people problem, not necessarily solved solved for it. It's something where you know it's one of the the um, sort of founding kind of core ideas uh, for Omni now is is recognizing like we you know we I worked with probably you know thousands of of Looker customers. I probably met with personally a thousand Looker customers too over my time there, and I. Almost all of them ended up inevitably in in a state where there's effectively you know data chaos and and we would call it model rot where you know the yeah. uh, the content is suddenly disconnected from from the data you know you've lost columns in the database you've lost tables in the database you've lost uh, you know you've now got inconsistent logic you know even though you've got a software development lifecycle that that can uh, govern the de- development of of LookML you you end up it's sort of like a net additive thing. You end up with a huge proliferation of it and the like. And so like, you know, I, I think one of the things that you sort of, you, you were kind of highlighting, but I think it's super interesting, like actually thinking about the maintenance of, of your instance too, as a part of the, pro- the product problem, you know, in and of itself too, where, you know, perhaps not everything should be shared and, and shared consistently across it. Like there, there, are, you know, in, in Looker, we would have, customers that would turn off features like our, our PDTs, which is like a way of creating like a, a uh, uh, materialized table that would basically encode sort of business logic and, and materialize it in the database. People would turn that off because they'd end up having a like huge proliferation of it too. I think you see even even worse now with like DBT where everyone you know is now an analyst engineer and everyone's got their own schemas and they will add, add to you know the tables. We, we have to think of uh, data... And, and data assets effectively as a curation problem, and like maybe not everything should be part of a canonical data model. Maybe some things should be siloed, but but uh, you know we we firmly believe there's sort of a maintenance step. There needs to be sort of uh, higher order constructs to allow for um, kind of optional promotion paths for the things that are in fact actually reusable that need to be part of you know the, uh, you know you mentioned observability need to be part of something that looks probably a lot closer to CI/CD actually, and like looks looks closer to you know a testable, you know, verifiable kind of uh, kind of a process for key operational metrics or for key operational workflows. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think um, borrowing from software helps a lot. There is one kind of yeah. key change or key difference between, I think, data and software, which is that in data, like your truth is kind of defined by who's using those assets. And there's kind of a social aspect of data and the conversations that happen around data. Yeah. So you might have multiple definitions of a metric across an organization that might be similar, but but meaningfully different and purposefully different from the finance yeah. team, the operations team. But if you're on the ops team, what you really care about is like, what are the numbers that my boss is looking at? What are the numbers that the COO is looking at? You know, you, you probably, when you search for an asset, you shouldn't find the dashboard that the CFO is looking at, right? Yeah. Like, or you should know, hey, my boss hasn't looked at those set, that set of numbers in two years, so he probably doesn't care yeah. about them. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, literally when I was, you know, maintaining, trying to, like, maintain the, the data sprawl at MakeSpace, even though I had in many cases built, like, the canonical sales dashboard at one point or built the canonical ops dashboard, I would always, like, reach out to our VP of sales on Slack and be like, what dashboard do you guys look at every day now? Because that's the one that I'm going to use. You know, it doesn't matter what I bookmarked six months ago. It really doesn't. Yeah. They might have moved on. And I think that's great how like reporting yeah. can evolve and, and different functions can be really involved in that. But it's like there's this like social graph that's missing 
that would that would really kind of empower, especially centralized teams, to understand like what the heck is going on out there and in, in uh, across all these data assets that have been created. I, I completely agree too. It's it's amazing to me, but like we we don't use usage based features or functionality too to feed back into the the consumption process it's like you know we don't know the you know the the metadata about who created things and when were they last used and who's using them in sort of a a disparate way too and like uh, i think that that's like that's ultimately that's the most important signal is like if if this metric is what's being used to drive operations that's the metric we should actually care about versus versus sort of you know the theoretical best metric or the right metric or whatever it is so i mean it goes to like Ted's point about, or the the point in general about data as a product, right? And yeah. like, what does that actually mean? And if you're building an actual product, like the most important metric about a feature or an area of your product is like, do people use it? And like, how do they interact with it? Um, yeah. And why? And if they're not, you probably want to take some, like, to probably take that to end of life, right? And so that that should yeah. be part of the discussion, but often it's not. I, I think also too, their defaults are, are really important. So like. By default, not every dashboard should be a persistent dashboard for forever. Like by default, maybe in fact, actually everything is auto end of life. Or like you know, maybe you, maybe you don't lose the kind of conceptual logic. Like we're not throwing away the SQL, but like you have a big warning: hey, this wasn't, this hasn't been touched in you know three months. Like you know, user beware, kind of a thing. I mean, a lot of this, and um, this is where I potentially can jump the shark and take us in like a completely random direction. But you know, as I've thought about these problems and especially like the people dynamics i think a lot of it a lot of it comes down in some ways to like the problems of information asymmetries right uh and if you believe that in some way shape and form like data builders and data consumers in an organization like construct a market right uh there's in asymmetries in the information that they have about the data and how they use it right and there's like there's whole like theories in economics about how you were like resolve information asymmetries. And like the classic example of a problem this creates is like the used car market, right? Where uh, the buyer of a car doesn't know whether the car is a lemon or not. And therefore they're not willing to pay a lot of money for the used car. Um, but the seller does, uh, can price things efficiently. Um, and I'm not saying that every dashboard or piece of data that gets shipped as a lemon. But I, I do think folks are like, like looking at what's available to them and you're like, well, is this a lemon or not? And how do I understand that? Right. Um, and uh, that's like, there's an information asymmetry from the consumer side, but then to what both of you were just kind of saying, there's also an information asymmetry from the builder side, because you then just don't have the information that you need to maintain the, maintain the product or evolve it. Yeah, it would be like listing your car for sale and never knowing if it's sold or not, right? Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think I think there's also just the recognition that like some of these things we build are lemons. Like some of them aren't useful, some of them aren't accurate, um, and often those feedback loops are kind of broken to begin with. But you know, when you know that those things exist out there, yeah, it's it's impossible to build trust across an organization that there are extremely high value, very trustworthy data sets, you know, within this landscape that you can really use to make high value decisions. Like that's, that's a really difficult task for any data team is to build up that kind of trust. Because once you have it, you know, the whole organization can move a lot faster, they can be a lot more independent. That's like the dream of self-service. Um, 
but it takes a long time to, to build that and, you know, a very short amount of time to lose it. Um, and yeah, you don't, you don't always even get that, get that feedback. Um, when, you know, someone has a bad experience or, or discovers that they've been kind of consuming a lemon. Yeah. I, I, I completely, completely 100% agree too. I, I think ultimately it's really like a, it needs to be a partnership or like, you know, if you're building data as a product too, you got to be a product manager, you got to go talk to the customers and like, you sort of contextualize the product that you're building. It's, it's, you know, I, I think the, the data folks often have the context for, you know, like they understand the schema, they can understand sort of, uh, you know, the ETL process and the, the freshness of the data and the accuracy of the data. Um, they often have, a disconnect from like actual use. So like what is, what is actually important for, you know, the sales pipeline or for this product or for this department or for what, what, what not. And sort of, you know, the, the partnership I think actually is, is like, this is, I I think this is kind of a a people, people problem or a process problem too. It's like, how do you sort of contextualize both like enough of the technical side with the sort of like pair it with that, that business context too, and sort of have that feedback loop kind of, kind of going both ways. Yeah. I, I loved, um, sort of embedding or pseudo embedding analysts yeah. in, in teams. So, yeah. you know, I would have, you know, my team would report to me, but every week they would attend the marketing, you know, metrics yeah. review or every morning they'd attend the ops daily review. Cause then they get to actually see, you know, how, the teams are using their dashboards. They get to hear the questions that come up around the data and, and be part of that kind of dialogue. Um, yeah. Because without that, yeah, you're, you're completely blind. And I would, you know, if our, we got busy and our team members stopped attending those meetings or something like that, it just felt like that always kind of blew up because the business drifted faster than you think thought it would. The data or the software drifted faster than you would think. And, um, you know, the, it, it takes a ton of engagement and a ton of feedback that, honestly, isn't natural for stakeholders to provide. Like they might not even know the the changes that are happening behind the scenes or under the hood that, that might make their data less accurate. Um, but, but it's also just like asking them to finish their day job and then think critically and think hard about, you know, how they could use data better or what parts of their reporting, you know, don't answer their questions today. That's, that's a lot to ask of somebody who's, who's very busy with a completely different job. Um, yeah. But that's also a very expensive people solution to a problem that yeah. we hope could be, you know, sort of supplemented or, or the solution could be supplemented by usage data or other kind of things yeah. that we talked about. Totally. I mean, I think part of the challenge there was from having talked to lots of teams is just like, how do you, and Ted, you were kind of just talking about this, like, how do you manage like the demands on your team of like all of your various workflows, right? And it's like, you've got all this like engineering work that you have to do. There's like service partnership related like interactions. And then there's like the long-term product management, right? And it's a lot to put on like a generally a small group of people, right? Um, And there's lots of context switching there. And so if you just lean fully into the people into the people version of the solution, right? Um, It's a hard one to scale and get right. It requires a lot of judgment, I think, in some cases, um, and in many cases, like, and I hope this is changing, and I, I feel like it is, but in many cases, our data analysts are among the most junior people in the organization, right? They're 23-year-olds, you know, smart, um, ambitious, but don't have the context and the years of experience to understand the long-range consequences of what they're doing. And... Um, so often analysts are over eager to kind of build something new and create a new solution and answer a question for the first time because it feels great, but they don't appreciate the costs of 
supporting that thing that they just built into perpetuity. Um, and uh, so that's that's definitely something that I learned kind of the hard way over and over again. And now having done that in this kind of job for many years, right, I, I, I appreciate the difference uh, between uh, getting someone a quick answer and making it clear that this is like a one-off exercise or a, a, a one-off um, kind of analysis that may build, that might sort of con- be contributed to a knowledge repository, but doesn't become a piece of software that I have to maintain forever. Um, and I make decisions about how I build it and how I communicate the result and how I set expectations in order to enable that. Because if you don't do that and you, you think you're in like kind of product building mode, um, and you set those expectations or you make certain investments in, in building that product, like you can, you can end up in a really bad spot, you know, six months down the road where you've built all these products and you haven't maintained any of them and half of them aren't being used and the other half are broken. So um, it, can be, it can be a really, really tricky um, sort of balance to, to strike there. I mean, you've kind of just been talking about it now, but like historically, how did you, you know, you talked about embedding, what you, know, you were just saying, you know, what, what are the top mechanisms or solutions that you like had implemented to try to address some of this in the past? My my biggest hack that I wish I could sort of copyright and take credit for is I would basically offer to do a dashboard review for anyone in the organization, turn around in less than 24 hours. So go out, build whatever you want, um, send me the link and I'll look at it and I'll give you a thumbs up or thumbs down in 24 hours. Like if you built this right or if there's things you need to know about or, or be aware of. And that's, you know, same thing for if anybody wanted to say, hey, like, I'm about to use this dashboard to make a decision. Does this look right to you? I found it. Someone built it a year ago. Like, can I use this? I just over and over again in almost every interaction with my like stakeholders across the business and product and ops and marketing, I would just repeat this over and over again. I'm like, if you ever don't know, or if you don't use the dashboard every day and you just found something and you want to build something new, just send it to me. Because I can take 15 minutes and probably tell you if it's close to really like right or not. Um, but if you never send it to me, if you never ask, I'll never know. And then like, you know, I kind of wash my hands of it. And <laughs> if, if, if you end up making the wrong decision, I'm going to like not back you up in that meeting. But um, I, I really think that that helps build a lot of trust. And it, it put this kind of people and process um, step in place that helped at least guard against like the worst case scenario, which is somebody wakes up, finds a dashboard and like makes a, a huge decision off of bad data. And I'm sure too that also enables folks to learn and like sort of you're empowering folks to go do self-service too because you've got a you know a a step to you know validate and verify that something is okay but like it's okay if you know whatever the product you know product analyst goes and builds a new dashboard and then can vet it can vet it and that's sort of a you know it's a, that's a feedback loop in and of itself that makes that makes sense that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it empowered people. It definitely I felt like it was time very very well spent. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it dramatically kind of lowered my stress and improved everybody's trust and improved everybody's usage of, of the tool once, once that was in place and once I made that like very clear um, across the organization. Ted, did like people take you up on that a lot or was that more of the thing you did every once in a while, but then people no, didn't actually... Like multiple times every day. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a full like, hey, request that Ted validates this and certifies this in perpetuity, right? This was more a uh, like a one-off like gut check or was it more of like a spectrum? I would say the request was always just like, hey, is this right? 
Because <laughs> I think even that level of subtlety or nuance is way beyond yeah. what you can expect from most kind of business stakeholders. Like the difference between is this right now and is this going to be right in a month? Um, like people don't really think that way in my experience. So it's like, hey, is this right? It's a quick message in Slack, like one line, like in a link. That's it. That's all I need. Um, and then I would take 15 minutes and, and write back usually just a couple of sentences around, you know, yes, this looks great or most of this is good. This one thing worries me or I want to make sure you're thinking about this metric the right way because I know that metric can be really confusing and I don't know that we've like, I've trained you on that metric yet, you know, th things like that. So we kind of ran the spectrum, um, you know, the highest level of engagement for me would then be like, okay, I'm going to schedule a meeting with you for 20 minutes tomorrow. We're going to talk about my concerns about this. I'm going to push you in the right direction or train you on a new way to kind of get to the numbers that you're looking for. Or, hey, I need more context about what you're doing. Like, let's talk about that. And then I can, I can give you better feedback. So it usually was a very high leverage um, activity. Like once the, the team kind of scaled up, then um, either I would, you know, divert those requests to, to members of my team or like that would become instead of a one-on-one -on -one conversation, it would, you know, become a me and my team member with, with our stakeholder kind of a conversation. So again, we're sort of building that knowledge internally and, and building that trust and, um, and, and building a relationship between the more junior members of my team. So um, it was just a really... I just found it to be a way that I could offer to be really helpful, um, like increase my gauge, engagement with everyone across the business. And it just, it always ended in these conversations that just felt really good and didn't honestly take that much of my time. Jamie, is there other things you've seen teams do or you, any team, you know, your teams have, have implemented in the past to, to try to solve some of this? I, I mean, I honestly, I, I, I always loved the uh, sort of hub and spoke embedded analyst model too. I think a lot of it, I think this is true for like my product teams, but like it's certainly true for data teams too, building for product, you have to build empathy for customers like that. That is, is clearly the best practice. I, I, I've seen folks do things like office hours or training um, very deliberately, like as a part of onboarding even like, so whether they're doing a new tool or bringing new people on to the, to the team, sort of like uh, promoting an atmosphere of data literacy where there's some contextual piece like this is, you know, you're the marketing ops person and like we're going to train you on the you know mar marketing metrics or the marketing dashboards and stuff and like you sort of learn um some best practices from from that process uh but like there there it's it's sort of it's variable it's variable with like the quality of the content and the engagement and then also to how much uh you know and anyone uh like i mean basically like to contextualize it fully it's like how does this help me do my job better and so like you have to kind of inspire the, you know, why, why look at data? Why will this improve your, your process and whatnot too? And I think that tends to be uh, almost like a cultural thing that's embedded as opposed to, um, you know, something that can be kind of, uh, you know, br brought or like, you know, change, changed in a one-off, you know, handful, like having like the single office hours, I think it's hard to just, to just change it. Um, aside, aside from that, like it's, I think the other area where like folks end up breaking down quite a bit is uh, sort of like there's the interface between sort of the business and analysts and BI kind of folks too. Then there's also the interface between analysts and kind of the data engineering, you know, it, the infrastructure folks and like the, that's whether it's like, you know, ETL and like, you know, uh, or, or five tran replicating SAS, SAS metrics or, or whatnot, where like there's like, uh, there's losses, um, 
in context there. And like, I think, you know, the rise of the analyst engineer is amazing and people are actually able to do, you know, things like data transformation and, you know, pre-processing of, of data and like, you know, Snowflake and BigQuery make things possible and Fivetran makes things possible, um, which is great. I think we, you still see like, you know, the product team shipped a new feature and changed how the, their, you know, their underlying data model works for their product, which is totally fair and should never be gated on by data, but may break downstream things or like have unintended consequences for downstream things too. And so I think that's the, like another area where, um, you know, we see like a lot of just like, you know, like entropy again, you know, in, in it where like the columns change, the tables change, like the, the, you know, the meaning of things may change, you know, in a, in a way that's like not as intuitive to folks too. It can also still have that like same terrible and end user experience where like, you know, I thought all the logic was consistent. The sequel is good, but like, you know, you, you're now throwing all of the experimental records in or like the, you know, the deleted records are in from Salesforce and now they're all present because like the you know, DBT model changed a little bit and we didn't really realize it downstream. Um, but yeah, I, I think like, I think all of this is always like an iterative process where like you kind of have to kind of continually talk with more and more folks and like uh, go back to, uh, you know, first principles like, hey, we want to solve this problem. We need this data too. Let's make sure it's, you know, all the way up and down the stack is verified too. And, and, you know, sort of have partnerships sort of all the way, all the way up and down to the, you know, end business user through sort of like the, you know, the engineer who's actually, you know, enabling. Yeah, I think, Jamie, one thing that you kind of touched on, but I think one of the reasons that good tech solutions don't exist for this is it's, it's really hard tech to build. I mean, the detecting sort of schema changes is one thing. But the schema yeah. doesn't have to change to totally break yes. the recording, right? Yes. You're building a dashboard of men's pants sales. Yes. And then, you know, you launch a kid's line or something, right? Yes. Like the data can change, but the, without the schema changing. And yes. um, it's, uh, you know, you could write a DBT test and for how, like, yes. what are the accepted values of that column? But that person who's like, a few layers deep in the marketing organization who cares about the sales of kids' pants, like, is not going to go and write a DBT test to validate the assumption that they made in their dashboard. Like, that's never happened. Yes. And so um, it, it's, it's, really, it's really, really hard um, to sort of future-proof something when there are so many kind of degrees of freedom and so many different ways that your, um, your data or your you know, can be, or your assumptions can become kind of incorrect. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely, completely agree too. Like it's a, you know, it ends up being like a problem that has a bunch of different disparate, uh, sort of, uh, I guess owners of various parts of the solution too. And like, they all have to interface in order for it to actually come together to work too. So like, it's a, it's like, it's like you know, when you're the one, one person data team and you're doing everything and like you have all the context of the business and stuff too, like that's a, that's a favored favorable place. And like, that's a, it's, a, it's amazing. You can kind of go really quickly too, but then inevitably complexity creeps in and like, you want to have specialization and like, you know, it suddenly, yeah, that's exactly right. Like you, like, you know, you, you've changed what the definition of these things mean. And so as a result, like the, you know, even if like sequels still valid, it's not, it's not like what you think it is actually. That's exactly right. Some of these changes, it, it, it becomes impossible to control for all of them. Right. And I think it goes back to what both of you have been saying around uh, investing in the relationships and the partnerships. Yeah. And in some way, this is like everyone's problem to address. It's not just like the data people, but it's also like the 
folks throughout the business who are consuming the data, right? And maybe it's the data team's job to go and evangelize that and to catalyze that. Um, yeah. We ultimately have to create a culture around it um, uh, where you've got the quote unquote customers talking to the builders or the product people, right? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, I've been going for a while. I think that might be a good place for, for us to wrap uh, unless either of you have uh, anything else that you think we should cover. Um, and, um, again, Ted, Jamie, thanks so much for joining and thanks for everyone for listening to, uh, data knowledge pioneers. Uh, uh, and again, I'm your host, Nick Freund, founder and CEO of Workstream IO. Um, and if you're excited to learn more, uh, please join us next time, uh, where I'm going to be talking to the founder and CEO of Brooklyn data company, Scott Brighton, owner. Uh, and the head of analytics at Future, Michelle Ballon, and we're going to talk about uh, or dive more into uh, kind of tribal knowledge about data uh, and how to capture it and empower your team. So, Ted, Jamie, thank you, and thanks everyone else uh, for listening in. This is fun. Thanks. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, guys.